danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 367 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I'm Andrew Brokus. And from Laughlin, Nevada, this is Carlos Wilch. Hello, Carlos. Welcome to our first, I guess, I'm not even sure you and I have actually done a solo show before for the regular. I mean, I think there was always someone else, uh, you know, either Nate or we did an episode with Sean once. I don't know if you and I have ever done a... Um, a one-on-one for, for on the, on the regular feed before. We actually have, and it Didn't was we? a special. It was a special one because we were in person together. You don't remember this? In Pittsburgh. In Cherokee. Oh, that's right. Yes, that was a that was a very fun episode. I I'm embarrassed that I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, that was when I first bought the Prius. So yeah, that yes. was a yeah that was a great episode. That was a great episode. Everyone should go back and, and listen to that episode. Um, which episode was that? Now i got to find it. But you're right. That might be the only one where it's just been you and I on the um, um, main podcast. Yeah, this is episode 314. It came out almost exactly two years ago from uh, when people will be hearing this, December 17th, 2019. Uh, so episode 314 called Carlos and Cherokee. Uh, you know, th- these episodes where we're, we're in person, whether it's you and me or, or me and Nate or whoever, uh, I just think there's like an extra, uh, extra amount of fun energy when we're able to be <laughs> in the same place uh, recording. Yeah, I think part of that is because anytime we're in the same place, that means we've kind of had some of the uh, same experiences lately. So um, I want to say that one, um, you were playing the events at Cherokee and I I was primarily just um, railing or playing like um, single tables, but just being able to hang out in the same city and, uh, you know, have... um, um, other friends there. I think um, um, Briar and Russ were in town. So yeah, those are always like fun environments. It was just Briar, or at least during the time that I would say. I think I think maybe Russ had been there, but he was. We, we did not overlap. Um, but yeah, hanging out with with him was fun as well. Yeah, yeah. He was either there before or he was coming after. Yeah, probably before because uh, I'm pretty sure you would have been there for the main. Yes, I was. I, I was chip leader in the main for a while, and then ended up bubbling it because I didn't uh, take your advice about <laughs> uh, playing the bubble as carefully as I should have. Right. Um, so you now, uh, technically, you're in in Laughlin now. You're about to head back uh, in in the direction of Cherokee anyway for Christmas, yeah. Yeah, so it's been a weird year for me um, because the WSOP was in the fall this year. Um, I didn't have time to drive home like I would normally do during Thanksgiving. And so um, I had to fly. So I flew um, to Atlanta for Thanksgiving, stayed for a week or so, and uh, then came back 
to the Laughlin area um, and I'll be here for a couple of weeks and then I'll basically do the same thing, um, fly back home for um, Thanksgiving for a week or so and then come back. For Christmas, you mean? I'm sorry, sorry. Christmas, Christmas, yes. Yeah. I, Which I, I didn't guess, even realize. I, I thought you just didn't go back for Thanksgiving this year. No, I did. Uh, it's just that, you know, um, the um, I want to say the World Series ended that Monday and I didn't really have time to um, um, drive. And then for Christmas, um, there's no way there's no way I'm going to drive just for Christmas and then drive right back. It usually works out well because I would drive for Thanksgiving and then stay till Christmas. So it yeah. didn't feel like a turnaround. I mean, you don't want to do a, too many cross-country turnaround trips. Uh, and so it was because I flew for Thanksgiving, um, I'm pretty much going to do the same thing for Christmas. That's interesting. It, it always struck me that you didn't seem too bothered by like, it, it surprised me how often you were driving back and forth. And it didn't seem to me like that uh, it, it bothered you too much. So this this makes a little more sense to me that you are at least a little bit reluctant to just <laughs> drive back and forth across the country on a whim. Yeah, it's like it had become a part of my life um, to the point where it didn't bother me so much, especially because back then I was spending so much time in my car anyway. So, like, you know, if I'm going to be in the car most of the day, it really doesn't matter much to me if I'm driving apart. Um, but uh, now that, you know, I got that diamond car, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually diamond plus now. So I'm like, you know, I've uh, I've laddered in the um, diamond world, and uh, is, is that just because you you booked a bunch of rooms, or how did how did you ladder? Uh, booking a bunch of rooms, yeah, uh, and uh, because of that, I'm spending more time in hotels these days. That's actually why I'm in Laughlin as opposed to Vegas because um, they've been comping rooms. And um, I can get comp rooms in Laughlin where in Vegas, I just have to pay like, you know, whatever this, this small fee they normally charge. But like comp rooms with no resort fee, where it's just literally 100 percent free. Can't turn that down. Pretty great. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking for today, um, we can just do, you know, I, I tried a little bit to line up some guests. This is sort of a tricky time of year for people, and I'm a little lazy. So uh, I, I don't think anyone other than me is disappointed that we, we don't have a guest and they just have to listen to uh, you and me discussing strategy. Uh, I will remind folks that if you enjoy hearing Carlos and me discuss strategy, you can uh, get it in your ears every day of the week at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily uh, for as little as $5 a month. You can get access to, um, yeah, Carlos and me giving you a daily 10 to 15 minute burst of thinking poker strategy. Yes. Now, before we get into strategy, I mean, maybe we can use some time to just do like some, like normally when I would be the guest for uh, like once every what three or four months, however we did it, there would always be like a life update thing. Oh yeah, do so, you have life updates? Um, well, I, I haven't done shit, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was gonna be my other questions. Like, what are your life updates? But um, uh, uh, for me, it's like uh, mainly just poker stuff. Um, the um, uh, uh, I've been on a bit of a heater, so it's kind of cool to uh 
talk about that. Like this is the first so, time. By, by life update, you meant brags. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, when well, your life is as cool as mine, like life updates are going to be brags. <laughs> uh, so two things I wanted to um, throw out uh, was um, so at the end of November, I'm actually going to like I got to pull this up because it's so crazy. Um, it's funny. I, I sent this to Alex and uh, I'm trying to go back through uh, Alex Fitzgerald Sassanato. I'm trying to go back through our conversations to find it, and I have to scroll back through a lot of rap and boxing talk. All right. So um, the end of November, uh, I had a 17K score on the 23rd, a 10K score on the 28th, and a 12K score on the 29th. So three five-figure scores in one week. Like, that's the first time that's ever happened to me. I had two other final tables uh, during that week also, but, you know, they were only four figures, so not even worth mentioning. Not even worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, 3,200. One was 3,200, the other was 700. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that was kind of a crazy uh, little streak to hit. These are um, ignition tournaments or Bavada tournaments uh, coming right off of the end of the um, – uh, World Series, um, where I didn't play much on Ignition. So in July, I played the online WSOP event. So I was kind of focused on that, not playing much on Ignition. And then when the series started, um, I was primarily just playing live satellites. Uh, I won four seats to the main, another brag. Uh, uh, didn't play it, though. I just sold the Lammers, which I think we talked about a little bit last time on the last episode. Yeah, they, they had to create a rule you were selling so many Lammers. <laughs> Some chance, a very small chance that – I'm glad you brought that back up because uh, me and uh, uh, Briar were uh, talking about maybe that was the reason, but then we saw that Kev Math thought that – um, it was um, something else that I can't remember now, but he didn't seem to think it was because of me. But I'll, I'll give it like a uh, a ten percent chance that was cause that was because of nine nine times out of ten it was whatever this other thing. Oh, people were openly trying to sell the lammers in front of the cashiers, which that's um, always been a thing. I've people never, would just like walk through the registration line and be like, "Anyone want to buy lammers?" No, I, I've I've never done that. I'll I'll do it in the line outside of the uh, cage, but I wouldn't. Oh mind. yeah, yeah, not not literally in the room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they will go in the room, like almost like up to the window with people trying to sell them as the people are counting money and stuff like that. So that was oh, just yeah, yeah that's super, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's the main reason that you know the rule was instigated, uh, um, not instigated, um, instituted, mentioned or threatened or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, but because it wasn't know, even really a new rule. Like that's always been the policy. It was just that they didn't, they were never exactly. really like trying that hard to enforce it. Exactly. And then when I sold my lemmas after the fact, uh, one of the um, uh, one of the um, managers, I don't know the right word for it, but one of the the big guys there said that basically that that's always been the rule. Um, but yeah, so that that happened this summer, and uh, up until the time. Summer, geez, that happened this fall during the WSO. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, um, I've been on 
a, a pretty big downswing on ignition. So I talked about this a little bit on Twitter at I think the last time I mentioned it, it was like 30K. It was like a 30K downswing. But then when I kind of like actually finished doing the calculations by, you know, the end of November, it was like 45K. So although it sounds nice that I had those uh, uh, three five figure scores in a week, they still only like got me about, you know, 80 percent out of that uh, downswing, which um, which is fine. Uh, um, this is just what happens as you um, move up in stakes and play higher. In fact, I actually went back and listened to the episode that we did after I won the Bavada Major. And one of your pieces of advice during the episode was um, the valleys get deeper <laughs> and. <laughs> And the 45k downstream is a pretty damn deep valley um, when you consider where I started from. So uh, thanks to you, I expected that, and you know I just roll with the punches. Yeah, that's the thing that I find tricky. You know, talking to uh, people who who aren't poker players who don't have a lot of insight into poker, right? Like a common question will be, "What's the most you ever won?" Or sometimes, "What's the most you ever lost?" If they're assholes. Um, yeah. But either you know, either way, it's like I don't really want to. Do, like I'm not even that that like private about like i'm not unwilling to answer that i mean you can you can google it and find answers to that but um it's just like i want to give people the context for it like if you just if i just okay i won 200k in a tournament you know or something like that like that by itself doesn't like that's going to give them a skewed sense of what's really going on so i find it more helpful to be like oh you know i like i make a probably like a fairly average income over the course of a of a year but the fluctuations day to day can be you know plus or minus several thousand dollars and you just have a bankroll to observe that yeah I, I try to give people a little bit more of a realistic sense of what it's like rather than just giving them one number that they can't really help but take out of context yeah that's true i mean probably the best way to view it is like you manage and this is actually what it is you manage a small business and if they think about business um, fluctuations in cash reserves, uh, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't um, like if you're running a business and the business makes like 50K in a day, uh, the manager of the business didn't make 50K that day. Uh, so <laughs> right. like, yeah, so like you have an income as the manager of this business called, you know, uh, Broco's uh, Enterprises uh, that doesn't reflect the same as those cash fluctuations. And I think if people viewed it that way, they would have a more a it would be closer to reality. Yeah, I should say, too, I, I had a, a bit of a check your privilege moment just then. Um, I'm not really making an average income. It, that's more reflective of it's an income that would not be uh, like if, if I just gave people like my average annual income for the people I'm talking to, it wouldn't strike them as like, whoa, that's a lot. <laughs> it, it, it is, in fact, high relative to like the U.S. average. And, and uh, I should acknowledge that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so that's the one thing I've been up to is just crushing Bavada's face off. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other thing that I've been up to, or I plan to be up to pretty soon here, is um, doing a lot more studying. Um, I recently increased my coaching, coaching rates because I'm not going to have as much time to do one-on-one coaching over the next year because I really plan to um, dive deeper into the books. Um, and you know, just get a better um, 
understanding of GTO. And one of the cool things that I'm kind of like doing right now um, towards that is uh, digging deeper into this GTO check um, uh, solver that we talked about a little bit on here. But uh, the Finding Equilibrium um, YouTube page is doing this cool little series now where the guy is teaching his girlfriend how to play poker using the solver. And the girl, the girlfriend doesn't um, play poker at all. So she doesn't she didn't know anything about poker. And he basically taught her the basics using he's teaching her the basics, uh, starting from a solver perspective, as opposed to how, you know, we all learn the basics. Mm -hmm. And so just going through those videos and slowly seeing her game fundamentally improve from basically nothing to like doing it the right way is kind of a cool way for me to follow along and and basically learn become a go back in time and become a child of, of the sim uh because you know because sims were not around when i was a child so this is my way of getting in the time machine and going back and learning poker the right way so yeah that's what i'm going to be doing over the next couple of um uh, couple of months and i'm really looking forward to that Nice. Yeah, I actually have a um, some videos that I did for Solve for Why, uh, where I used the um, the GTO check tool, and it was my first time using it, so I don't. I, I'm sure that I didn't, didn't take full advantage of its power, but it is. Um, it's just interesting. You know, I, I've talked before about how. I, I often don't recommend that people do their own solver work. I mean, there, there's a certain level where you need to, but I think for like a lot of the people listening to this show, um, you know, a lot of recreational players in particular, even as a serious recreational player, unless you really actively enjoy working with the solver for its own sake, like you just find it fun to kind of geek out with the tools, which is you know, totally reasonable. And I do sometimes also, but from a pure, you know, what's the most efficient way that I can spend a few hours a week studying poker. I don't think it's trying to do your own solver work among other things there's a pretty steep learning curve to know both how to get a solver to do anything but then even more so how to interpret the results once you have them and i think that the gto check and i know there are some other products out there that i'm, I'm less familiar with that are starting to add new tools for interpreting solver outputs and like making sense of them and trying to translate between okay here's here's what a solver is doing how do i translate that into something that i can actually implement as a human at the table you know how, how can i learn lessons from this and translate it into something more usable i think there's still room to um not just for that tool but just in general like i think there's there's still a lot of territory for new products to continue to bridge that gap but i think that has been one of the from what i've seen um advances in like how technology is helping people get better at poker is not necessarily producing new data but helping people better like visualize and think about how to use that data right we're literally solving for why <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well that's all i got and you've been um you said basically just hanging out yeah, um, I mean, still, I, I've, I've, I think I've alluded to this a few times on the the show, but I've just been like 
super busy with coaching. I mean, returning and, and playing live poker has not been real appealing to me. I've, I've done it a couple of times. Now there's this new variant out there floating around. So I'm still not like, super inclined <laughs> to, to um, be playing a lot of live poker. And uh, the demand for coaching has just been so high that I'm like, yeah, I'll just stay home and, and do this as long as people are, um, are into it. So I've been playing a little bit on, on uh, ACR, but have not, um, yeah, I've just been doing like a, a ton of coaching, which I guess is a good time to plug that as well. If you uh, are interested in, in uh, adding to that demand, um, thinkingpoker.net slash coaching, or you can message me uh, on, on Twitter at thinkingpoker. Uh, I do like real time coaching. And then also at, uh, for half that price, I can do custom videos also, which would be if you send me like a hand history or something like that, I can just record myself commenting on it. And that's like a more um, if, if, if you're not looking for the like the back and forth, you just sort of want my my input. Um, that's a, a pretty economical way of getting that. Sounds good. Now let's um, talk about some hands. Yeah, actually, I, I had maybe some more uh, theory questions. Okay. In mind, if if you're up for it, so we had some some. Uh, this was actually a submission for Thinking Poker Daily, but I think it could make for some interesting conversation here. And I know you know for both of us only saw this like half an hour ago, so neither of us have like thought this through real fully. But it's pretty interesting. I, I had not even heard about this that um, uh, Rick shared with us. Uh, there are some new rules on GG. Poker, and I guess I will say this is only according to Rick. I've not independently confirmed this, but I don't know why he would make this up. Um, that uh, that are, are kind of surprising to me, or not something that I had I'd heard of before, even like really heard the people were demanding. Um, but uh, he said in uh, new final table rules at GG Poker in fields of more than 100 players. Uh, he, I guess there are more than this, but the two that he flagged is most interesting. Um, the average stack at the final table is always at least 40 big blinds. So they'll like roll back the size of the blinds. And um, he says most of the time, the amount of big blinds that you have doubles or triples to accommodate this. Uh, and then also that all players have the possibility to change seats with another player before the final table starts. And this goes in order of chip count. So the short stack chooses uh, a seat first and then the you know chip leaders can or you know, as, as stacks get bigger, that's like the order in which so that the, the chip leader is the one who gets the final choice of, of seat. And I think it is that you can, you're changing seats with another player. So I think it is like going last. It's not like musical chairs where the player going last is stuck with whatever's left over. I think the player going last can take a seat and, and uh, t- take a seat away from someone who has previously taken it. Yeah. Seems weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the second one is really the one that throws me. Uh, I mean, obviously, like I know that this is a common complaint for people, or, or you know, many people w- will say they they want to have deeper stacks at, at final tables. So that's like that's not as surprising to me. I think this is the thing I've at least heard proposed elsewhere, maybe even that has been done elsewhere before. I've never heard the bit about um, being able to change seats to the final tables, or even that this was like a thing on people's wish list that they were like, I wish I had the opportunity to change seats with other players at the final table in order of chip count. Uh, like, I don't even know what's, what's like motivating that change. Yeah. Me the Yeah. I, you know how I feel about new stuff. <laughs> like it took me, it took me like, you know, decades to just get a decent, uh, uh, strategy down. And now, uh, these sites are throwing in these wrinkles and stuff like yeah I don't know how I feel about this yeah I'm trying to like think through it 
almost in, in real time. Um, and I guess I think that the think simpler one to wrap your head around is just rolling back the blinds so that the final table is deeper. I mean, generally speaking, we would expect that deeper stacks will benefit the more experienced player or the, the more skilled post-flop players tend to benefit from having deeper stacks and more room to play after the flop. I'm trying to think about just in terms of if, if we ignore the skill factor, if we assume everyone is, is of equal skill, whether this is better for short stacks or for bigger stacks, um, I feel like it might be worst for medium stacks. Like Because as a medium yeah. stack, often what you want is you're, you kind of want those short stacks to get eliminated. That's like the more important thing for you than, than accumulating chips yourself is seeing those short stacks get eliminated. And uh, of course, they're not going to get eliminated as quickly if they've just doubled or tripled their chips. There's not as much pressure on the short stacks, which means that you as a middle stack have to be pretty tight. There's like more ICM pressure on you while you're waiting for those short stacks to bust. So my, my first instinct is to think that this is a bad thing for the medium stacks, probably a good thing for the short stacks who have less pressure on them and, and can afford to wait a little bit more themselves. Uh, and probably also for the big stacks who are happy to... Um, take advantage of that extra ICM pressure and uh, that they can sort of be pillaging blinds a little bit more since there's no one who has as much incentive to like stand up to them the way that if someone only has like four big blinds left, it's kind of hard to steal their blind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, what, what do you think about how this affects the strategy coming into the final table? Like if you're a short stack on the final table bubble, it's like, uh survival is way more important it's almost like a you know these rebuy tournaments where you're kind of like hanging on with like one big blinds just so you can make it to the Mm -hmm. (laughs) add-on yeah it kind of feels sort of like that yeah i think so i I think i mean that is kind of the correct strategy anyway on the final table bubble, right? It's like as a short stack, you are trying to, um, I guess you know, I had Dara O'Carney on here recently who wrote a book about uh, ICM and you know, his argument was that really the final table bubble is where ICM is, or the final two tables is when the ICM effect is largest. So I don't know that this is you know, a qualitative change in the strategy, but I think you're right that it's giving the short stacks even more incentive like the value of limping into the final table with an extremely short stack does it's increased because you are going to have you know you're going to go from having three big blinds to having 10 big blinds or something once you actually get to the the final table and um that just gives you a little bit more um it's, it's less likely that you'll be the first person eliminated essentially right right now, now, what's the site's motivation for this? Because I would think what this does in terms of the tournament is extend the number, the amount of time it takes for the thing to end. So it seems like they would be losing money um, because now they got to wait longer to rake the players again. I don't know why. Yeah. They would this. Um, I mean, maybe just responding to consumer demand or, or trying to innovate and make the site more appealing for people if this is a you know, complaint that they were getting often or something. I mean, it is something that's going to affect only a pretty small number of people, right? It's, it's only making the tournament take longer for nine people, however many people make the final table. So True. maybe that's not that big of an effect for them. I do, in general, like to see sites doing this kind of stuff. I think in, historically, PokerStars has been pretty good at like innovating new new tournament formats. And you know they don't always work out. Obviously, there's things that have been tried over the years that they didn't end up sticking with. But I do, in general, like to see uh, sites just 
trying new things. And um, over time, we do get some, uh, not that this is attributable to a particular site, but, you know, Big Blind Ante is the, the most significant thing I can think of that's been added to poker in the time that I've been playing that is just sort of, it went from like from the time that I first heard about it to it's like universal adoption, um, at least in live poker was maybe like a year where it was just like, and it was just like, this is obviously better. We should definitely be doing this. And we just need to give people a little bit of time to get used to it. And then we're never going to look back. Yeah, I do like that aspect of poker. What is kind of like um, how the um, uh, the United States was uh, originally supposed to be with each state being like a separate laboratory for these yeah. sort of like, you know, changes. And I like that when the changes are happening on other sites. I don't want to be the guinea pig. Uh, <laughs> in fact, in fact, uh, Bavada tried to do this recently with, uh, that's another one of the reasons why I didn't play much on Bavada this summer is because they were experimenting with a lot of PKO events and I just didn't play those. And I guess things didn't go so well because they have now basically switched back to where most of the events are just straight up um, no limit. But um, I do like it when other sites experiment with things that like maybe I'll turn out to like this and not know I would like it um, until somebody else until it became a thing and uh, other people kind of like co-signed it. Um, but, yeah, I think that is a good thing. Um, yes, I'm, I'm trying to think in terms of, you know, how it would affect your strategy. Like we said, I mean, as, as the short stack, you are more inclined to, to try to like limp in. I mean, I guess it's also more incentive to try to be the big stack going into the final table. I always worry saying this because I don't want to give the impression, like I, I don't think it's correct to sort of like take negative EV gambles to try to become the big stack, which is always my concern that people are going to come away from this of like, oh, I have to do something really gambly to try to run up a stack. It's more a matter of like, how often are you going to pass up opportunities? And I guess you should be a little less inclined to pass up opportunities where you, if you're sort of a big stack potentially colliding with another big stack and the result will be either you come away with a commanding chip lead or you're left with a pretty short stack but not eliminated that's going to be somewhat more appealing in this situation where um it, because we're increasing the value of both being that short stack and the value of being the the dominating big stack at the final table there might be a little bit more incentive um to like not pass up an otherwise plus ev spot in that situation i don't think it would go so far as to like deliberately do some kind of negative ev thing just to like hope to get lucky and have a big stack yeah that that makes a lot of sense too like this is another thing that i've learned from you over the years is um some of the most honestly um i think i've heard nate say this um several times also uh one of the um some of the most profitable decisions you get you get when you're a short stack and yeah. so so you kind of like benefit both ways if you like take uh um, thin edges to try to get a big stack, thin plus EV edges to try to get a big stack. If it works out, great. And if not, you're a short stack where not only do you normally have good uh, plus EV opportunities, but now that's even enhanced because of this new um, structure, which you really don't want to be as the medium stack if you get an opportunity to um, avoid that. Yeah. Um 
How about this? The other one of um, you know being able to to swap your seat. That feels to me like a harder one to wrap my head around because you have to like anticipate. I mean, I guess this is a very game theoretical thing, but as one of the shorter stacks swapping your seat, you have to anticipate what other swaps are going to happen <laughs> later. So like Rick um, gives a few of his own thoughts on this, which I agree with, which is that like uh, you would be inclined to try to get to the left of other big stacks. You know, you don't want to have someone who covers you on your immediate left and also like more active players. You'd like to be on their left. And then, um, to be on, on the right of, uh, short stacks. But, um, you don't like, so you have to anticipate that they might move after you move. <laughs> um, and that I feel like makes things very complicated here where I guess it's another advantage of being the, the chip leader coming into the final table. And like knowing that this rule is going to be in place and you're going to get last choice of your seat. That's really just going to even further amp up the value of being the, the single biggest stack. I think even like pretty well disproportionately to being the second biggest stack. Like, I think like really yeah. the, the difference between acting last is much better than acting second last here because you get to choose the like single best seat with perfect information of where everyone else is. So you can always get to the left of the person who is immediately shorter than you, which I think wow. is probably what you would want to do in those situations. It's so funny. Like uh, Alice Fitzgerald likes to say the game is always being played. And when you think about it, even though this isn't like a hand, but even within the within the confines of the game of poker, but not in an individual hand, position still matters. So, like, you know, being last to act as the big stack in this, like, seat-changing decision is just as important as having position within a hand. That That's pretty funny that it worked out that way. Yeah, because um, it seems like you can, like, if, like you know, the short, the short stack really doesn't benefit at all. Like the guy that gets to go first, like his decision means absolutely nothing. Since yeah, everyone everybody... else is just rearranging themselves <laughs> around him afterwards. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, this is uh, definitely a major benefit to um, um, the big stacks, and like you said, um, probably twice as good, if if not more, for the biggest stack than the second in chips. Um, yeah, it seems like big stacks should put themselves in position to um, uh, win tournaments a lot more often because of this rule. Um, yeah, this is, this is, um, this is interesting. Yeah. I guess most of these, um, this is how this benefits the site. I just figured it out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> most of these changes that happen at the end of the day, they, they encourage more, um, more um i was gonna say more gambling but maybe that's not what i'm trying to say here um uh, it's yeah i, I lost my train of action um yeah yeah that's yeah so basically gambling <laughs> and uh <laughs> generating action is like so it's so so plus ev to be the big stack when you get to the final table, um, just normally. And then on top of that, you got this thing where, you know, the blinds go back. And so you kind of get to abuse the, um, uh, 
the uh, medium stacks for longer. And then on top of that, if you're the biggest stack, you get to choose your seat. That encourages a lot of action and gambling before the final table, which is probably going to um, uh, uh, make money for the um, poker sites in the long run. Like the more, the more they can um, incorporate. Because some people aren't going to take our advice. Some people are going to take negative EV opportunities to um, kind of be the big stag. It's kind of like the um, PKO thing. Like that encourages action. And I think that makes more money for the sites. And this is kind of just another way of doing that. Now, once you get to the final table, uh, I think things slow down a little bit. But, you know, just knowing the average poker player, they're probably going to take the action a little bit too far before the final table starts. And that that's good for the poker sites. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, a thing that I often talk about. I, I wrote an article um, really a long time ago at this point called The Calling Demon. And the basic idea is that like everybody wants to play more hands and really be more loose passive, um, maybe be loose aggressive, but everyone like loose is just more fun for everybody. And there's always this danger, like because we all have this this desire to play more hands, you always have to be wary of any any new thing that you learn, no matter how sophisticated <laughs> it is in terms of poker strategy. Your calling demon can always just twist it into an excuse to like play more hands pre-flop, call more river bets, just you know, do things that are really fundamentally not good poker, but you know. It can be like, oh, you're going to get exploited if you don't make this call. You know, it's just sort of uh, always latching on to any any new thing that you learn to just uh, draw you back to your fundamental fishiness if you're not uh, careful. And I could see certainly people using this as an excuse of like, oh, you know, I, I gambled here because I really wanted to be the chip leader at the final table. I'm just imagining someone that's explaining this to their backer, like why they bubbled the final table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really good point. Um. The other thing I was going to... Oh, yeah. So when you meant, said the thing about the game as always being played, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, there there is, like, that concept of indifference <laughs> that comes up from, from game theory. Uh, I think it's probably how I would think about this as someone who's not the biggest stack. Like, if I were the second biggest stack, so I'm choosing my seat knowing that the very biggest stack is going to go after me. Um, mm. I mean, I guess what you're trying to do then is... Either you know find a seat that's like otherwise good for you gives you like good position relative to other people if you can do that, but also thinking about how to make the big stacks choice as unappealing as possible. So if you know that the big stacks like general inclination is to get on your immediate left, you might be able to choose a seat where that's otherwise kind of undesirable for him. Like if there's a couple of short stacks on his immediate left, that actually can be kind of bad for the big stack because it's like harder for him to open wide when there's short. I guess they're not going to be super short under this format, but um, if there are like very short stacks behind them, it's harder for them to open wide because they're going to be priced in and those players are not going to be doing a lot of folding. So that can be kind of undesirable for the, for the chip leader. And so essentially you have to recognize like his incentive is going to be to jump on your immediate left. And then you have to think about, you know, is it possible to choose a seat that might give him some countervailing incentives or you know, maybe push him in a different direction or at least make it like not that much better for him than any other seat would be and you have to balance that against your your own incentives of course but uh, i'm already thinking about like how how game theory can help you make these decisions yeah yeah like as you get later in position in terms of seat selection uh if you're not the biggest stack it becomes a game of defense to Mm -hmm. where you put yourself in a spot like you said where the um um, big stack is kind of disincentivized to give himself 
the biggest edge on you on you like like you're not in a position to be able to choose like good things <laughs> you're just trying <laughs> yeah. to prevent you know bad things and so you kind of just pick a me- mediocre spot which is uh right up my alley <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything else you want to say about this no, this actually turned out to be a better conversation than I thought. Like I'm, I'm like really, really against new stuff, <laughs> <laughs> and so whenever there's something that I read it and is like unfamiliar to me, I'm just like I don't even want to bother with it. But this is kind of fun. I thought this is the southern gentleman in you. They're like I don't want any change. Yeah, I mean, I here's the thing, man. Here's the thing. I feel like, and this is gonna, you know, we talked about privilege earlier. Uh, this is gonna be uh, me, um, uh, uh, me not um, acknowledging my privilege, but I feel like there's so many opportunities in life that I felt like I kind of got in on like the last leg, uh, like the poker boom. Like, like I, I got started with poker pretty early, and there were a lot of of my contemporaries who were playing the same stakes I was playing in, but I couldn't really dive head first in like they did because I was teaching and that was taking up so much of my time. And then when I finally got a chance to like really dive into poker, it was black Friday and the poker boom basically ended and like, you know, things started to slow down. And then, um, uh, there's some other, Oh, uh, the real estate, uh, bubble. I started selling real estate right before the market crash. I was like, damn it. I always forget time. that you sold real estate for a little while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like this was uh, 2006. Uh, and uh, whenever there's like a big money making opportunity, I feel like I'm like always on the the end of the stick up until recently. Like my my. Uh, I mean, you you had Bitcoin fairly early. The, the, the worm has turned with uh, Bitcoin <laughs> and then also now um, poker. Like I've kind of like, you know, not, you know, not saying I figured it out, but I know enough about poker to where I can actually make a decent living with it now. And now they want to change the rules at the final table and do all this other shit before I can really exploit, you know, the new uh, position I'm in. But um, yeah, uh, that's why I said I have to like, you know, check my privilege on this because like the Bitcoin was like, Probably um, if I could trade all those other missed opportunities for this one, I would definitely do it. Um, uh, so, yeah, but, you know, uh, if if history is any indication, uh, poker, Bitcoin and uh, the uh, diamond card will probably all end next year. <laughs> but let's now, hope that happens. <laughs> Let me let me try to, to flip your perspective on this. Uh, these these new changes are your opportunity to get in on the ground floor, right? Like you figure this stuff out faster than other people do. Like I think this. Uh, I believe I heard Mike McDonald say this, or it's, I think it's certainly true. Like looking over his career, like one of the things that Mike McDonald. I mean, obviously he became like an extremely good poker player, even in like standard poker formats. But one thing that he was always really good at was when there was some sort of like new format or new promotion or something like that being presented you know he would try to like figure that out before other people did and the thing and i think this is something that i mean i get hung up on this also is like that you want to be really good at something before you do it i think there's sort of like a risk aversion thing and you know it's like you don't have to be great like you don't have to get all these things right you just have to do it better on average than your competition does and it's easier to do that 
you know, like, of course, you're going to be better at, you know, a traditional no limit hold'em tournament than you are in some new format. But what we really care about is the, the, the skill differential between you and the people you're playing against. And it becomes harder and harder to get those edges when, you know, people like, this is the average person understands no limit and no limit tournaments now. Uh, I, mean, I don't know about the average person, but you know, like the average, like somewhat serious player is like fairly competent in a lot of these things. And like, there are really good resources out there for preflop range selection and things like that. Whereas if you go and play a, um, I don't know, Dramaha tournament or something <laughs> like, obviously you're not going to be nearly as good at Dramaha relative to how good you are at No Limit, but relative to how good anyone else is at Dramaha, you know, maybe it wouldn't take that much work to become like a, a you know, much better Dramaha player than the people you're playing against. And like, that's how you, that's how you get in early in these, other than just like getting lucky and being in the right place at the right time, you know, it is sort of like identifying these opportunities early. That's a good point. I do. I do like um, because I'm um, uh, I'm pretty lazy. I do like these <laughs> spots where you know I could do things uh, at a relatively high level, even though I'm at an absolute uh, mediocre level. Uh, yeah, those are kind of like uh, those are the spots I love in life. Well, I don't have to work as hard to become like the top, you know, five percent of the field. Uh, hell, I guess these days with poker tournaments is like one percent to even make some money. But yeah, um, the the less public knowledge there is to of a thing uh, to a thing, then um, the easier it is to kind of like get a competitive advantage. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll keep that in mind. Uh, well, thank you, Rick. That was a very interesting question. I'm glad you brought those changes to my attention because neither Carlos nor I is playing on GG Poker, so I'm not always real aware of uh, of what's going on there. Um, we do have another kind of interesting, I mean, theoretical also, but much more specific situation question here from uh, Christopher, who also submitted this for the Thinking Poker Daily, but you know, assume Christopher listens to the regular show as well. Um, and he was asking about, uh, so he says, I'm uh, new back to live tournaments after two years playing online and without a big blind ante. Um, this is a weekly 120 local card room, decently slow structure, 30 minute levels, about a third of the field is remaining, uh, a third of the current field will get paid. Um, and he has 30K at the 1K, 2K, 2K level. Uh, he's in the small blind. Under the gun limps with a 45k stack, and the action folds to him. Says the big blind covers uh, both of them. So I don't I mean I, I gave you all those details. I don't know that they're super important to his question. He's just I think generally asking about how should he think about limping, folding, shoving. I guess I would even add you know raising not all in could be an option in this situation, although it's probably not a real appealing one. But um, it's just how to think about playing from the small blind in this spot in general. Uh, and he's saying that you know, what's throwing him a little bit is both the player limping and also the the big blind ante. Um, I have some preliminary thoughts here, but I can, um, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to say first. Um, I just wanted to um, uh, just make sure everybody call all the information and just to summarize it, we're looking at a spot where, uh, a covering stack limps from an early position, and we have 15 big blinds in the small blind. Um, and we're trying to decide um, how we should construct our range 
for folding, limping, shoving, or like Andrew said, raising less than all in, which is probably not going to happen too much here. But yeah, so that's the situation we're looking at. And mm-hmm. I'll let you go ahead and start on this one. Okay. So I think you know, range construction is a good term to use here. That We are thinking about playing a range and not just whatever two cards you might happen to hold right now, because recognizing how you're going to play other parts of your range could help you to think about how to play any any particular hand. So one thing that I like to think about is just the, the fundamentals. Um, and I think part of what's tricky about this is if you're not used to thinking about poker in a theoretical way, if you're just sort of, you've, you've learned specific spots of just like, oh, with 15 big blinds, I know what hands to shove if it folds to me in the small blinders, but then like, oh, wait, but there's a limper. What do I do about that? You know, I, I think that the, the way that I would start thinking about this is, okay, you're getting, you're getting very good odds to call, right? I mean, there's two four six seven k in the pot and it's going to cost you one k to call so you're getting seven to one on a call and what that tells me right away is if i think about just splitting up hands into folding hands limping hands and shoving hands i think that limping should be the largest of those buckets i mean that does not to say that you want to be calling everything and getting seven to one in a three-way pot is different than getting seven to one in a heads-up pot but at those odds, there are a lot of hands that are going to be profitable to complete with. So I think that the biggest bucket is going to be limp. Does that sound right to you so far? Yes, I agree with that. So I think just starting there and saying, you know, if, if it doesn't, if it's not immediately obvious to you, so if you have seven do self suit, go ahead and fold. Um, if you have pocket queens, go ahead and shove. Um, but if it's not immediately obvious to you what to do with your hand, um, there's a decent chance you should be calling with it. Like that, that should be the, the the most commonly taken action. So when in doubt, I would say call. Um, in terms of what to make of the under the gun limping, you know, this doesn't have to mean a lot. Uh, some people are very loose passive and will you know limp with a lot of different kinds of hands. Uh, I mean, in theory, it should be fairly strong just because the player is voluntarily entering the pot from very early position with a lot of people behind him. So if we're thinking about, you know, someone who really understood poker well, their limping range here would be fairly strong. It would probably even have some traps in it, like aces or something that are you know, extremely strong hands. Uh, so I would think that, you know, the, I, the side of the gun limp should not be, as a default, treated as just like, oh, that could just be, you know, some fish limping to see what happens. Now, it might be. I mean, if you have that read that that's, that's who that player is. And he does say that under the gun is a loose call-oriented splashy type. So I mean, with that extra information, I would be a little less inclined to think that that limp is a strong hand. But my immediate thought is, even though this player is not raising, they are still voluntarily entering the pot from very poor position, which means that they should not really be screwing around too much. Like, I would think that they should have a hand capable of calling the shove uh, a shove from you somewhat often, but it shouldn't be like a guarantee that they're going to call it. But, you know, I would not be surprised if they had a calling hand. And the more that we are thinking this is a loose, splashy kind of player, the more fold equity I would think we might have on the shove, which is going to make shoving a somewhat wider range more appealing. The, the more that you can expect under the gun to have a wider range, the wider you yourself can be shoving for value, both because you have more fold equity and because the the average hand that calls you might be weaker which means you'll you know whatever hand you have might have a little bit more equity when called than if this were a tighter player yeah when he says that utg is loose call oriented that means passive and so that means this is probably not something unexpected from this player to limp in and so i think this limp 
would be a lot scarier from an aggressive player. If you have a guy that raises every hand and then all of a sudden they limp under the gun, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a big hand almost every time. But if you have a guy like, you know, depending on how call oriented it is, I mean, if he's if he's calling first to act um, um, like 30, 40 percent of the time, that's going to um, lead you to a different strategic decision than if he's doing so 10 percent of the time or if he's like this is the first time he's ever done it. So all this kind of boils down to ranging. And it seems like a tournament. Um, like I mean, if we're this deep in the thing, um, especially if it's a 120 in a local car room, there's a good chance we play with this guy before. There's a good chance that we play with guys like this guy before. And we should have some sort of like read. Um, doesn't need to be too specific, but just an idea of like roughly what kind of range we can expect here. And that's going to inform your decision. Um, basically just uh, what's his range and whatever deci- whatever action you make, what are you targeting with that action? Those are two, the two key questions in this spot to me. Now, Christopher also mentions the big blind ante as a variable that's confusing him. And that one, I think, I mean, it's it's relevant in that it's dead money that's in the pot. I mean, it makes your, your calling odds better. It also gives you there's additional reward for shoving. You you win a bigger pot if your opponents fold. I mean, even if you get called, there's that extra money subsidizing you in the pot. Uh, but the fact that it's a big blind ante as opposed to the kind of you know, ante from every player that you would see if you're playing online, I don't think that's of any great relevance. I mean, all that matters really is the size of it. It doesn't matter who contributed it. Once it's in the pot, it's in the pot. The fact that it came all from the big blind rather than, you know, 12% of it from each player at the table is not really of any strategic significance. Um, sometimes if like if the table is shorthanded, it can be the case that, you know, the big blind ante results in a larger pot than what you would get if everyone were just contributing like a 12th of a big blind or an eighth of a big blind or something as you might see uh, online, but I don't, I don't get the sense that that's what he's, that he's wondering about. I think this is just a thing that confuses people sometimes is not a pretty, like because the big blind ante is dead, it really just matters that it's an ante. It's not important that it came from the big blind. Yeah. I don't think in this particular situation where we have 15 big blinds, it matters much. Um, but as we get shorter, it does start to matter. Um, and the way it changes strategy is that, um, and this is something that um, Dara and I talked about recently. Uh, as you are shorter, you can play tighter from late and middle position because it doesn't cost you anything to see the next hand. But as you get closer and closer to under the gun, you kind of get wider to the point where you like maybe you just jam any two if you are um, um, under the gun with a very short stack um, because if you get a spot where uh, maybe not any two, but I'm trying to remember what Dara told me. Uh, if you get a spot where uh, you're forced in by the big blind, uh, there's some, depending on what the rule is in terms of uh, if you get in with less than a big blind in the spot, like where does your money go towards? Like, do you pay the big blind first, or do you play the pay the antes first? Like, yeah. that's gonna that's gonna be a very strategic, uh, a, a very uh, important strategic consideration. And if you 
plays so tight under the gun that you basically force yourself um, in once the big blind hits you, there's a chance that you can win a smaller pot than you would have been able to win had you just jammed yourself. And so that that becomes a strategic decision uh, when you're shorter. But I don't think 15 big blinds is the time to think about that sort of stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think another thing that that I will highlight, you know, I already made the point that you should be doing a lot you know, more calling here than you are doing anything else, um, which isn't to say that you won't have folding and shoving ranges, it's just that you have a lot of incentive to call. I think this is another thing that people um, confuse sometimes because when you call, you are fairly likely to lose. And that's okay because you're getting seven to one on the cost. You can afford to like call and lose. And there's a number of ways that you could lose. I mean, you might lose because the big blind raises. You might lose because you go to the flop and you miss the flop. And it's hard to win when you're out of position to to two people or you flop kind of badly and your hand can be tricky to play. I think it's, you know, I, I know, I know from coaching and things, a lot of people's inclination here is just to imagine the bad situations, you know, to imagine the like, well, I'm, I'm probably just going to call. So aren't I just lighting that 1K on fire? No, I mean, I'm probably just going to lose. So why not just lighting that one guy on fire? I mean, it's it's not just about what's going to happen most often. Like what you're doing is you're you're making a a profitable but high risk wager. And I guess some people have the idea that like as you get shorter, you shouldn't you shouldn't like be as risky with the last of your chips, which is not wrong. But this is not the last of your chips. I mean, you have 30k, and this is 1k that we're talking about. So I mean. Yeah, of course, it's you're not going to be thrilled to like lose and now only have a 29k or 28k stack or whatever. But I mean, it's it's a risk worth taking. So if you can imagine the the kind of worst case scenario of like, well, what if I what if I flop top pair and I'm dominated, or what if I what if I miss and I have to check fold? I mean, yeah, those those are risks, but you also have to think about the rewards. I think too often people make decisions in these situations just by focusing on the risks and they just say well this might happen so i i fold because i didn't want that bad thing to happen and it's that way i mean but sometimes you you do win the pot and when you do it's a it's a large pot and you don't have to be a favorite to win you can accept that it's going to be disadvantageous to be out of position um and you it, it can still be correct to call here and really i mean you want to focus on hands that that are not good enough to shove, right? I mean, generally, if 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 you can shove a hand, that's probably going to be better than than calling with it, um, because it is disadvantageous to play out of position to two people. You really value the fold equity that would come from shoving. So I think in general, you're going to prefer shoving when shoving is is profitable, but it's only going to be good with so many hands. So there's going to be a lot of stuff, especially like smaller cards that have some straight and flush potential. So like seven, four suited is the kind of hand that I wouldn't be real inclined to shove unless I thought that both of these players was going to fold too often, which is a real possibility. But if I didn't think that one of them was going to make like a huge mistake facing a shove, I think stuff like seven four suited is the kind of thing that you want to be completing with here, um, just because it holds its equity fairly well in multi-way pots, but is not a real high equity hand that you'd want to shove. Like I think your shoving range should be fairly linear of just like your best X percent of hands or your hands that will have pretty high equity against a call. I think you should expect that there is a real chance your shove is going to get called. And so your choices of shoving hands should just be, um, it's not like you're going to have really good hands and then also some bad hands as bluffs. It should just be a sort of top X percent of hands um, and then, you know, calling or folding everything else. 
Right. And then um, lastly, I would add, um, if you know anything about how these players play post-flop, that also can increase the value of seeing the flop with those sort of hands. Uh, oftentimes, players who limp in um, pre-flop will play sort of passively post-flop, and that'll kind of help a hand like 7-4 uh, realize its equity if you're up against a guy who's not going to um, put you to the test when you flop bottom pair. Yeah. Uh, okay, anything else you want to say to to Christopher or other people who are curious about Christopher's question? Um, no, I think we covered it pretty well. Um, only other thing I would say to Christopher is uh, thank you for subscribing to Thinking Poker Daily and for writing in the question. Yeah, uh, and thank you, uh, everyone, for listening to this show. I guess I'll put out one last plug, which is if you're looking for uh, holiday gifts for yourself or anyone else, www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, you can get all of the various Thinking Poker strategy products that we've put out over the years, which means um, there's the Exploiting Small Stakes uh, video from, or Small Stakes Tournament specifically, video from Carlos and myself. That's been a, a bestseller recently. Uh, all of my books are available on there in ebook format. The paper versions you have to get through Amazon. Um, some old books from Nate. Uh, some the Weekend Warrior podcasts I've done with Nate. Uh, you, you were talking about crushing the single table tournaments and single table satellites at WSOP this year. So there's the the single table um, strategy podcasts that you and I uh, did. So a lot of good stuff there on knitcast.com if you're doing any uh, holiday shopping or just want to get more strategy stuff from us. Yeah, and you got uh what like six months six seven months before the wsop starts so <laughs> if you're planning on playing the main event um i would highly recommend um uh, um thinking tournament poker by nate mavis um uh, one and two volume one and two and also all the uh, thinking poker diaries that andrew did um over the years discussing his main event runs um those are very good study materials for um putting yourself in the 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 right mindset um coming into the main the the second main event uh within you know a seven eight month period which is kind of insane but those are the times we living in andrew <laughs> well, thank you for the plug, Carlos, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Right, take care. All right, bye. of a car the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't you won't sign I dropped it up a beautiful contract Tapped all of the language leads to the death.